Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, joined once again by our panel of newbies. Say hello, panel. Hello, hello. panel. Once again, I am joined by Greg. Welcome. Siobhan. Hey, everybody. Samaria. The tide is rolling. And David. Make it so. Today, we are obviously discussing episode 203, What Might Be. AKA, what the hell did you make us watch? Yeah, that yeah, was some I, fucked up shit. Um, no doubt. I mean, um, I didn't see the fucked up shit, literally, but, like, it was some fucked up shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. After, after our, our recording of the last episode, I gave uh, Samaria a little warning about the the thing that happens, because I know Samaria doesn't like uh, the, the really grotesque type stuff. So, yeah. Gave her a warning, so uh, maybe I should have given the rest of you a warning, too. <laughs> that was... Wouldn't have mattered. Wouldn't have mattered. No. Would have watched no. it anyway. Yeah. And been just as pissed off. So let's just get right into it and, and get your pissed offness out into the airwaves. <laughs> let's see what happens here. <laughs> okay. All right. We start out in the White Tower and uh, Nynaeve, we're, we're picking up right, after, right at the end of last episode, Nynaeve getting ready to go through the arches. Uh, we get a little bit of exposition about Turangrial, which which I've explained to all of you in the past. I think none of that was new to you. They say that this is one that makes you confront your fears. Rules are, if you begin, you have to continue. If you refuse to continue, you will be put out of the tower. If you, you might not return. Some people just don't return. Um, and you can refuse now and still come back, but refuse three times to start and you're also out of the tower. Strict in here. Um, yeah. <laughs> the first thing I noticed actually was like, oh, it's three of them, and they're all different ages. Hmm, mother, maiden, crone. That's funny. Oh, yeah. oh nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, I wonder if that's some sort of clue about what's going on, because, you know, three arches, three people. Interesting. And I was right. <laughs> three. It's a magic number. <laughs> I like to refer to this Tarangrial as the uh, Scroogeinator 3000. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why do these confronting your greatest fear things always have to be metaphors and stories? Why can't you just have somebody that just says? <laughs> you know, you somebody just walks in and there's like spiders everywhere and they're like, yep, that, that, that's about it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she has to enter with nothing and they tell her that the one power won't work inside. Uh, the way back will come but once. Be steadfast. So we are in Arch 1, the Arch of Christmas Past. Nynaeve, she's a child again. She's with her father, and she's learning about Crimson Thorn Root. Hey, they're bringing up Crimson Thorn Root again. One might almost think it was important. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We love a theme. (laughs) Chekhov's Root. Then some men show up and and attack and almost kill Nynaeve, but Nynaeve's mom shows up and is a badass and pincushions several of them. Indeed. They then run home and hide in the basement. Uh, the arch appears as as she hears her parents being slaughtered above. And she gets up the fortitude to go through the arch, but she's clearly traumatized when she comes back through. And she's baptized in water, cleansed of her sins, and and healed of her wounds. Yeah, I, I loved the way they just dump the water over her head yeah, with no, no warning. warning. <laughs> Unceremoniously. Splash. <laughs> it's like she's you just went through that trauma. Here's the ice bucket challenge. And they didn't even, like, do it gently. Like, no, that's a hard water park style pour. I I suspect that people come through who are, like, 
you have like you've just been through this incredibly traumatic experience in, in shock recentering into your body into the present is hard it's probably legitimately the best way to do it just shock them yeah <laughs> you're back <laughs> i'm genuinely surprised that nynaeve didn't take a swing at at leandrin at that point honestly yeah <laughs> yeah for many reasons and it's clear she's been reliving this moment in her brain and over and over again she's wondering what she could have done to change it and help him and that's what as a child no less what the arch is really getting after is now you're an adult now you have these abilities and you can do something different and you here's the opportunity but yeah you've got to leave it's just before you can fulfill that just reliving that trauma it's a real cruelty to it but you know like i I'm trying to think of how to how to how to frame this. I've had the experience of being in therapy and talking about things where I felt that I let people down and abandoned them. And my therapist saying to me, "How old were you at the time?" And I'm like, "12." Oh, I question. <laughs> like, yeah. Question, <laughs> <laughs> Siobhan. And so, like, I can really see that this is a way for her to go back and relive that experience as an adult and say. You were fucking 12. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like you're carrying around this guilt your whole life because you because yeah. you, you didn't have the outside perspective that this is now giving her. So, I mean, it is absolutely the roughest way to to process it, but it it is still processing. Like, but do they have a counseling center? Because you can't really just throw somebody in there. They come out and they're like, your grief is your own. Help with it still. <laughs> All right, I got to quote Spinal Tap on this. It puts everything into perspective. Too much fucking perspective. Arch two, the Arch of Christmas Present. She walks through and she finds herself back in the two rivers, and finds everyone in the Wine Spring Inn dying of fever. Tam is dying, and Natty Cawthon is the wisdom, and she's giving people. Crimson Thorn. Hey, there's Crimson Thorn again. She's giving it to them to ease their deaths. Not not to help them, just to... She says, there's nothing we can do. I'll, I'll just give them an easy death. She's Wisdom Kevorkian. <laughs> Can't tell me they couldn't have come up with a better wisdom. <laughs> there's no way this is reality. I, I think that's the point. Like, it's if it's your worst fears... Then, like, it's like, what is the worst possible situation you can come up with, both in terms of, like, what the situation is and, like, something that will make Nynaeve go, make you who you and the Arch go, like, what would guilt trip me the worst? Like, what is just the the most concentrated form of fear I can do about what the other option for my life is or you know the opportunity cost and this this is the opportunity cost like you leave and suddenly oh suddenly there's a there's a plague suddenly like the worst possible <laughs> nurse in in the hospital is that has stepped up like all Matt's your loved ones are gone yeah like <laughs> and we know it's fake like i was like okay this is actually a really good a really good way to like express your worst fear because this is very similar to what mine would be like oh without me they're all gonna suffer oh like a, right. like obligations 
worst possible version of It's a Wonderful Life. Right. Like, if you, especially (laughs) if you grew up the golden child, like you're the ones who all the expectations and hopes and dreams were placed upon. And you're like, you have that responsibility. You assume that responsibility super young, which Nynaeve did. Like, or have a thrust on yeah, you. Yeah, you kind of feel like you're not allowed to leave, in a sense. Like, you don't want to, but also, if you did, like, there's no one else to step up. Like, it's right. there's a lot going on here. Yeah. And uh, Natty Cawthon goes on to lecture Nynaeve on not being there when she was needed. She's like, hey, you can complain all you want, but we're doing with what we have. You You weren't here. You don't get to complain if you weren't here to help. Bit ironic, her lecturing. Yeah. about not being there for right. <laughs> um and she she tries to channel to help tam but then of course she can't channel well inside the the arches so nothing happens and tam just asks asks her to sit with him while he while he dies just that her being there with him is enough comfort for him and of course the arch appears at that exact moment yeah compounding the guilt she Ouch. has to abandon Tam. Ugh. Yeah, she she gets water thrown on her again, and, and there we are. That is just messed up. She seems to completely believe that the vision is reflecting the current reality. Yeah. yeah. She hasn't read much Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if for her that is a reality, like, of sorts. Like she like she doesn't question it. I caught that too. And it's immediate, like, we have to go, we have to help. Which is she's so kind when she's not biting people's heads off. Yeah. Um <laughs> I have to save you so I can beat your ass later. I mean, I understand the sentiment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that just brings to mind one of the fan favorite quotes of Nynaeve's from the book, which was I am not yelling, yelled Nynaeve. <laughs> <laughs> That's appropriate. Yeah, that is that is very her. <laughs> uh, so then she moves on into archway number three, the Arch of Christmas Future. And she has a bunch of weird, like, fever dream acid trip visions. And then comes back out of the arch covered in blood and has no memory of what was going on in She's wearing red in those yeah. visions. She is wearing red. I notice. Doesn't look that good in red. Well, if this is your future fears, then are you afraid of becoming <laughs> red? Yeah. Good possibility. So, yeah, she comes out. She has no idea what happened. Just weird visions. Um, and they baptize her once again. And she looks down and realizes that she has Lance Hadori in her hand. Yeah. It's all right. The blood's not yours. Just <laughs> like, very it okay. cold about it. My yeah. God. No bedside manner whatsoever. No. So you come out drenched in somebody else's blood. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, she tells them at this point to get bent because being Aes Sedai means abandoning those I love over and over and over and over and over. Y'all can just, no. Bye-bye. Yeah. And uh, she goes back to her room and says goodbye to Egwene and leaves Tarvalon and runs into Lan on the road because Lan is on his way. Because he heard from Alana, who went to Moraine, that Nynaeve was going through the accepted test. So he ran as quick as he could and runs into her on the road. 
and they embrace and a heroic slow mo hero pose for Leon on the black horse. <laughs> <laughs> the black... Dahlia said on a black steed with his hair <laughs> blowing in the wind. <laughs> the black cloak and a, all the black tack, and it's like, oh man. And and of course the door to leave shows up. Oh, it was all the fake. We we didn't really leave the hollow deck. We're still in the hollow deck situation. And which which yeah. tells me that that hero pose of Lan was straight out of Nine Eve's fantasies. Oh, yeah. I love that for her. Like, <laughs> good for you, girl. <laughs> I gotta say, when they ran towards each other and hugged, that was the first time in this episode I screamed. <laughs> yes, they're back together. <laughs> Where they should be. And so we go back to the White Tower and the arches grow quiet and she never came back. And Sherium takes a minute to rip Leandrin a new one. She's like, this is two. That's the second one. As she should. <laughs> How she even got a second chance is, like, so irresponsible. I thought they had some nerve, though, because I was like, you knew Leandrin, like, is iffy when it comes to novices. Like, that's and you're you're the one in charge, Miss Ma'am. Like, this yeah. is on you. <laughs> oh, but they had yeah, a vote, yeah. so... You know, it's out of her hands. Yeah, I, I, was like, I 100% agree with you. I was like, they need some education reform. I think Leandrin a lot of the time gets her own way just because she's so much of a pain in the ass. Yeah. That it's easier to just give in than to fight her on stuff, <laughs> even if you know that she's wrong. I know the type. PTA mom. Yeah. <sighs> right? Yeah. <laughs> education reform. The children are getting left behind real bad in the tower. And somebody, somebody needs to just, just say, Leandrin, shut the fuck up and sit down. Like, no, yeah. tell her no. How bad can it be? Tell her no. Oh, she's never heard the word no in her life. That's the problem. It's like, kill, kill a novice once, shame on me. Kill a novice twice, shame on you. We have an interesting question in chat from Gorgo. Gorgo's asking uh, what the panel, if, did you actually realize that Nynaeve was still in the arch before the archway showed up again behind her? I didn't. I didn't. No, I, no. I completely oh, yeah. bought it. Mm -hmm. as, I did too. You know, somebody somebody gets a good storyline wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it made sense the second time I watched it because I realized the arch appears in a way that you get to choose. It never sucks you out like that. And so the second time I was like, oh, she's thrown out the arch. She doesn't actually get to like actively step out of it. And that's mm -hmm. when I was like, oh, okay. So it's if you pay attention and you pick up on a small detail like that, which I did not, <laughs> <laughs> like it makes sense. But the first time, oh, I was got good. I really was. Yep. Same here. I did watch it paying more attention the second time. And I think there were clues. Um, but the thing that got me about the way that the arch appeared the first time is that it was very faint like she heard the voice so quietly that it was very easy for her to miss it and the arch didn't stick around as long yeah as it did the first two times it waited for her to kind of look back and forth figure out what was going on and then leave whereas that time it was like very faint very quiet yep. and then gone almost instantly yep 
It's like it never really came into focus. Yeah. Well, as they said back in the White Tower, she made her decision. So I think it was she had already made her decision when she came out of the, the arch the first time. It was like, screw you people, I'm not coming back. So then when the arch shows up the second time, she's like, no, screw you people, I'm not coming back. <laughs> so we get our opening credits finally, the longest cold open of the season so far. The second longest cold open in uh, television history. <laughs> <laughs> we, I have to say I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get more elaborate credits because the credits from the first season were gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking forward to that. It's real typical of a show to do that, but then like in the subsequent seasons, they'll go back to a longer credit sequence again. Yeah. It may be just a matter of time. They have so much yeah, material but, to get through right? in eight episodes. So we start out at Atuan's mill on Toman Head. Loyal says he knows nothing of these people. Yeah, that scared me. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, we're in for it now. And then I and I was like, oh, that's that's how my cousins feel when I tell them I don't know. They're like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> we are in uncharted territory. <laughs> it's the wild west. Uh so then Chandler uh steps out with guards and points at a young girl who is hauled off. And Suroth's voice then begins to lecture them on their forgetfulness. She said, this land is ours. It was never yours. So Atuan's Mill is basically Tibet. <laughs> mm -hmm. Is she talking about Atuan's Mill? Is she talking about Toman Head? Is she talking about the entire Westlands? What's she talking about here? I'd lay money that she's talking about the entire Westlands. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's the sense I got. Yeah, I was you like, know. damn, this is like textbook imperialism. I'm over it already. <laughs> Like, I answered my season one question, who the hell are you? I now know, go back. Just turn around. <laughs> go away. But it's like they've got this, it's like it's an ancient society. Uh, they still speak the old tongue, so, you know, they could have some, some ties to, you know, the time before the breaking, and they got issue with them. So, hmm interesting so then the voice talks about being archer pandreg's armies returning so i don't think all the legends about arthur's return really had this in mind <laughs> 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 and of course uno standing there is is right in his element he's ready to start shit he's like cool there's people to fight let's fight them and everybody else is like no uno yeah chill this is not the time to fight. Now is not the time. Uh, Masima, of all people, counsels restraint. And we've seen how good at violence Masima is. Yeah. And uh, Uno gives a Shan Chan soldier a stare down. And when the voice asks for the first pledge, the Shan Chan, the Shan Chan, the, the, that is hard to say. Shan Chan soldier. There we go. The Shan Chan. The person in the scary armor. Fallen <laughs> 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 tells Uno that uh, you are going to be the first to pledge. He's brought before the high lady and told to swear the oaths. Of course, he spits on the ground and says, fuck you and your oaths. Which. Oh, he swears. Yeah. You know. He did swear. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> he did swear. <laughs> 
You got that part of it right. Uh, then we hear that those who won't swear the oaths will have the oaths sworn for them. The oaths are to obey, to await, to serve. And then my next line of notes just says, fuck this scene. No, seriously, just fuck this scene. I refuse to even write about it. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is the second time I screamed. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit, that was brutal. I saw the claw and I was like, damn, it would suck if you tripped on that shit. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I luckily I was warned and like my intuition and work helped me out here <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so I didn't see shit. I like I saw a flash of what happened like right before the scene changed. And I was like, hi. <laughs> wow. Gotta go. I took a walk around my apartment. So one of the things I noticed on the second watch was when um, the Chandler is walking around picking women out, when they return to the throne, her handler bows and rests his forehead on that spike. So, like, part of their customs is you put yourself in a position where you could be slaughtered at any moment as a sign of obedience and i thought that is fucked yeah. up <laughs> yeah well there's a lot fucked up about the show well, i mean think about it these are people who the leaders have fingernails long enough that they can say i don't even have to wipe my own ass that's how powerful i am like the fact that you can enslave channelers and they are the most powerful channelers that we've seen yet like both in skill and force that says a lot, like what, then this was a very uncomfortable question for me to ask myself. I was like, one, it, the, the first half of it was like, well, how, how powerful are you that you can enslave channelers? And then the other half was like, why are you, as, are you as a channeler enslaved? And I was like, ah, I don't like those questions at all. <laughs> that no. up some very uncomfortable yeah. conversations, like as a black American, but I, yeah, yeah. I don't know what they've got going on, but I don't want to find out. But I do on like on a scientific like level. Yeah, and it makes you think. It's like th these people are definitely powerful enough to do to the fades what we saw in the last episode. But why would they? Because they have Ishi with them. They have Ishmael with them. It's like where are his allegiances in this? Because it seems like he would be on the fades would be on the same side as him. Right. So the question is, do they know who Ishmael is? Ishmael is. You've got me saying his name wrong now. Damn it. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Ishmael. Ishmael. Yeah. After years of hearing "Call yeah. Me Ishmael," I'm like, okay, well, I will. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, do 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 you think they necessarily know who Ishmael is, or did he just say, "Oh, hey, here's some powerful people. I should put my my." whispers in their ear and, and send them where I need them kind of thing. That's a good question. Maybe after seeing them take down a fade, it's like, okay, all right, I could use you. I mean, he knows them, but do yep. they know him? A great question. Right. Genuinely don't have an opinion either way yet. And I just want to talk about uh, Zurath's voice for a moment because the way she spoke, it sounded like a, a, a corporate training video or something. Like, yeah, yeah yes, I got it that did. Business very even tonal. In the books, they are said to have a slow slurring accent. 
And when Robert Jordan was pressed about this, he said it was similar to a Texas accent. Which everybody was like, no, the Sean oh, Chan do not God. have a Texas accent. I'm sorry, we're not going with that. And I think this was their way of kind of doing that, giving it that that All slow bow. measured corporate accent with an, a very Americanized accent at that. So I, I think it was like a slow yeah, measured American accent was their nod towards the fact that he said they had a Texas accent. To obey, to await, to serve. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so our next scene we end up back in kyrian we've got rand and Logain hanging out at the old sanitarium uh Loghain just cuts to the chase he's like how long did it take you to get in here and you're not asking me the question how long is it going to take you just get to it boy he's sharp man he didn't miss yeah. anything he might be crazy but he's not mm-hmm. dumb yeah, it, it, he was really giving this Tim Curry vibe of just chaos, yeah. just beneath the surface. Real quick, Willow, in the chat, Saroth's voice actress is married to Guy Roberts. Oh, wow. Oh, very cool. Whoa. So, oh. That must have made for some interesting yeah, color. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Hey, I just had to ADR something. <laughs> You're not going to like it. <laughs> Loghain says he remembers Rand on the balcony in Tarvalon because Loghain can see other male channelers. And he said, you are the strongest I've ever seen. You, you growed, glowed so bright that you would shake the world and I could not help but laugh. So that does answer the question about whether or not that laughter was a hallucination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Althor, with your glow so bright, won't you break the world tonight? <laughs> Greg. <laughs> <laughs> this is how Greg deals. We're all still getting over. This is how I process <laughs> grief. My grief is my yeah. own. This is how I process it. <laughs> <laughs> so Rand asks Loghain, how do I control it? And Loghain says, hey, bring me a nice Gildan in red and we'll talk about it. And then Rand goes back to the foregate and finds Selene. And on his way, we get a book-accurate Gleeman telling one of the stories of the Great Hunt of the Horn. I was going to ask you if that was a Gleeman. Mm-hmm. I caught that. Yeah, That it, was a nice nod to to the book readers because that was a but much more book-accurate Gleeman. But I think if, if Tom showed up wearing that coat, you wouldn't care. Doesn't have the cool jacket. <laughs> he, he finds Celine at her bar. Uh, her bar, the signage seems to be a moon and a star. Rand looks around in, in her bar for a Gildan in red. I don't know what he's looking for because there's not labels on any of those bottles, but you know. He doesn't strike me as being able to like taste or smell a wine and know what, what it is. So. Right. Or, or know what a good wine is or where it's yeah. from. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's into the whole terroir. I don't don't think that's in his skill set. Probably not. And uh, Celine says, well, if you want that wine, we're going to have to go somewhere else to find it. And we're going to have to go get you a much nicer coat. So let's do that. And then we jump back to the White Tower. And Eggy and Elaine both have hangovers from Elaine's Pruno the night before. Elaine is surprised (laughs) that a daughter heir can drink an innkeeper's daughter under the table. More free time. 
<laughs> so Eggy goes to Nynaeve's room to see what's up, and uh, Shiriam is there and says, oh, I didn't mean for you to find out this way, and, and tells her that Nynaeve did not come back from the arches. This fucking woman. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, she gets, we would have fought. Like, I actually don't blame. Uh, wait, did we have a scene with her and Nynaeve? I don't know. But if I were Nynaeve, I would have absolutely fought her by now. She's rude. Just, just straight up fisticuffs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like th this, this whole speech that she gives about, you know, you are a nice guy and you must stand on your own and your grief is your own and blah, blah, blah. I had, somebody said that to me when my sister had died. I'd punch them straight in the face. But, right. But also it's like, you guys are like, oh, I said I must stand on your own, but you live in a giant boarding school and yep. you guys do everything together to the exclusion of literally anybody else. Like, which one is it? Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just because it's the first day, but like, does she not even get a funeral? Like we saw this big elaborate funeral for um, Stepan and uh, the green sister whose name I can't. Um, Karene. Can't remember right off the top of my head. Karene. <clears throat> but if a novice dies in because, you know, one of the, the her teachers was negligent, then they don't get a funeral. It's just you're on your own. Screw you. Well, it, it may be a, pop, a fact that they don't have a body. I mean, there are some cultures that a, a body is required for a funeral. Or that there's no time to prepare yet. Like, perhaps that was planned, but... Yeah. There's, there's a funeral planned, but, you know, funerals don't happen the same day as the death, usually. This also explains why they have a lot less novices in the tower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure word gets around about all this stuff happening. Novices just disappear, and everybody says, oh, yeah, she died. And, and yeah, I'd be like, yeah, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not cut out for the Aes Sedai life. Right. Eggie freaks out, uh, very understandably so. Elaine gets yelled at by Eggie because no real good reason, because grief, really. She apparently gets yelled at a lot. That probably doesn't happen to her at home. No, she probably never gets yelled at. She's the friggin' princess. She doesn't quite know how to handle it. Our next scene, we see uh, Matt. He's he's asleep, and and then he wakes up, and and oh god, there's Leandrin. Nah. <laughs> I, I would have screamed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she tells him that Egwene is in the tower alone, and and might need him. And really, to be honest, just leave already, because I'm I'm done with you. Next scene, we see Leandrin putting Nynaeve's accepted ring into the crucible. Egwene confronts her and blames her for Nynaeve's death. Which is fair. Mm -hmm. Completely fair. To be fair. Be fair. Leandrin tries to leave, and Egwene fills the doorway with fire. I was like, oh, Egwene. Good for her. You're channeling yeah. on purpose. This is great. I was yeah. very proud. <laughs> That's the the most adept we've seen her at channeling ever up to this well, point. Well, her, her emotions are involved. I also noticed she channels with her chest. She doesn't use her hands. Mm -hmm. yeah. I noticed that she chose fire. Which, if I remember mm. correctly, is not uh, the ladylike form of channeling. So no, but it works, and she it doesn't works. have to use her hands. So that's what, her. It's what she's always channeled, it. though. Channeled, channeled fire with Perrin twice. True. I think fire is hers. And, and now in this situation, it's 
it's what we see her channeling. She's a firebender. <laughs> I really like the fact that when Leandrin kept saying, you know, know your place, stay in your place, you can see uh, Gwen's back get, go up and she's like, you have no idea what you're dealing with. I was really she's proud because, like, Egwene, I wouldn't say she's, like, she doesn't have a backbone, but I don't think that's her first line of defense as a person. Like, I think she is the kind of person who prefers, like, diplomacy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, she's very, she's very graceful. She can be really charming. And she's definitely a more of a people person than her friends quite frankly and so like to see her like be very intentional like in standing up for herself and her her friends and standing up against like someone in a position of authority that she's been readily like yielding to this whole time i was just i was just so proud like she's oh, she's, yeah. she's not someone who can be bossed around but like she's i don't think she's really what people would dub like a leader Leandra thinks she can be pushed around and she can't. I was like, hell yeah. Growing up, let's go. She definitely doesn't need to be protected anymore. She is, she's standing on her own two feet. Yeah. We saw that too when she was with the white cloaks. Like when she's, her back is absolutely against the wall. She says, mm -hmm. okay, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it takes her a lot longer to get to that point, but ultimately she will stand up for herself. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, she's a stubborn two rivers person. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Leandrin reacts to the fire in the doorway the way you think she would, and, and pretty much Leandrin's at at Egwene <laughs> as hard as possible until Egwene almost falls off the edge, and and they separate, go their own separate ways. Leandrin gonna Leandrin, that's for sure. She will never take responsibility. Like she, she tells Egwene that, you know, she was disappointed in Nynaeve. She will never take responsibility for what she's done. So our next scene, we're back in Kyrian and, uh, Rand is in a very nice looking red and gold jacket with herons embroidered on the collar and the sleeves. Celine, uh, comes up to him and says they've been invited to lunch with, with lady so-and-so and over there. What are we thinking about this scene, just, just from this setup? Um, I am very intrigued by this little walled town. Um, like, when it first showed up, I was like, huh, where are we? Like, because it's very, like, 1500s, 1600s England. Um, and then in this scene, I was like, no, seriously, where the fuck are we? Because suddenly it's like, you know, it's Versailles, and we have a little, like, orientalism like going on like i remember when that like was in fashion i remember like i say that like i was there i was not um <laughs> <laughs> but you know that was like that was the trend for a little while there and so they threw that in which i thought was a nice touch on the part of like the designers and the set prop people um but I, like i am very intrigued by this place like i hope we don't stay because they sound terrible but i wouldn't mind learning more yeah when they started talking about the hunt for the horn i was like oh like the hunger games yeah it's, it's very much a bread and circuses kind of deal for the poor uh you know give them a little hope but also 
culling the herd at the same time, so to speak. So yeah, I, I, I definitely got the Hunger Game vibe with that. You know, the the rich out of touch pitting the oh, poor yeah. against each other. The line about one less poor mouth for the rich to feed, and I'm like, sorry, who feeds who now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the tonal shift was really jarring. Like I was searching around for, wait, was there a, a commercial here that I didn't <laughs> catch or what's going on? This is not a costume set we've seen before. Not really a, a setting that we've even seen in this world before. That's the world that the daughter heir comes from. Not that world specifically, but the aristocratic world. I, I had to ask what this scene is for. Cause it goes on for, a fairly long time in an episode that's really dense. So, I mean, is it just to introduce us to the aristocracy? Is there, like, more information about the hunt for the horn that we, you know, that this becomes important? No. It seems like a, a weird scene to have, like, stuck in the middle of this very intense story. I have a lot of questions about it. I think it's setting something up, like, we have an invading ancient army. Um, we have the just gross excess with an aristocracy who absolutely hates the poor, even though they obviously are responsible for making them. What else do we have? We have, we've already seen civilish wars going on in the first season with Loghain. So. There's like there's a lot of things that I think are happening all at once that we don't quite have the full story on yet, but it's coming. And I think it does and does not have to also do with like the dragon and the final battle, et cetera, et cetera. The only other note I have about this scene is that the men should be wearing more makeup. If you want to go full decadent aristocracy, everybody should be wearing paint, not just the women. Right. Put on that blush. And I, I do, do want to address uh, Kyrian from the books quickly. Um, Robert Jordan has said that the the basis for Kyrian in both their fashion and, and their culture is a combination of um, uh, pre-revolution French and imperial Chinese. Mm-hmm. So the men should definitely sense. be wearing makeup. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so it, it it's <laughs> yeah it. you 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 all just completely nailed it with your descriptions of what you were seeing there. So. I was obsessed yeah. with pre-revolutionary France once upon a time. <laughs> My hyperfixation for a few years there. And yeah, actually, in the books, the men do wear more makeup. They're they're described as having a shaved and powdered forehead, which I could never quite understand what that really looked like, but. They all had powdered foreheads. I know exactly what that looks like. Go find like a portrait of Queen Elizabeth the first. That's what it looks okay. like. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so then uh, Celine comes comes up and gives Rand the wine that she found, and Rand is upset about Lady McBusybody who got in his face and like, oh, what are you going to do? What? Uh, uh, oh, well, th- well, that's all going to make them all whisper. Blah 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 blah. These are people with a lot of time on their hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they should go hunt for the horn. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you guys a little bit of information here just to see what you do with it. Um, so, Kyrian, this is where Moraine is originally from. I had a hunch, and I have no idea why I had that hunch, but I was like, mm, "This looks familiar." In a way, I can't pinpoint. Yep. And Moraine, Moraine feels familiar in this setting. Yeah. I don't know why. 
people with lots of secrets and intrigue political intrigue yes yeah but yeah that's in the x-ray um Karen is the capital city of the country of the same name and Moraine's place of birth. And one can see how a house would fall very quickly in a, a place yeah. like that. And she's, yeah, she is probably from the walled part of the city. She's not from the, the, the outskirts. The... A fallen lady from a noble house. Right. Yes. Is Forgate the word you're looking for? Greg? Forgate, thank you. Rand kind of gets upset with Celine about he's like this this great hunt is just a way of screwing over the poor people and and everybody here is just playing a game what's going on and she's like that's, that's just the way things are here yeah and he's like okay so what's your game what are you what game are you playing with me and, and leaves yeah because she seems like she's of this world uh you know somehow and uh, yet runs a a dive bar and in, in the bowery essentially yeah no she's just the lady of the foregate part of town I don't know. I don't know. She's she's the, the high end of the low it end. It seems like she's got a foot in in this world. She's in that upper middle lower class. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she knows how to fake it. She knows what she's doing. Like there are just some things once you reach that level of society that you can't fake. And it's very obvious in the small things that people who grew up in it are are very primed to like like pick out. And no one clocks her. Yeah. It's like knowing what fork to use, you know? <laughs> well, they, they all, she also said that they all think that they are outlander lords. Yeah. But she knows how to act like a lord. Yeah. She, she knows how to act aristocratic, if not necessarily Kyrenian aristocratic. Right. Right. So she's another probably noble lady from a fallen house elsewhere. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, does uh, Moraine have a sister? Oh. Oh. Or run away. You marry the wrong guy? Yeah. Yes, there's a story about someone who abandoned her. Maybe that's why. Maybe she got ditched by her family for bringing shame on the family name. And she's upset because he leaves before the fireworks go off. I was sad they called them fireworks because in the books they call them night flowers. And night flowers is just Ooh. such a more beautiful description. Yeah. I like that. Night flowers. It's a Bath and Body Works lotion. <laughs> <laughs> the existence of fireworks would presume the existence of gunpowder, which could, you know, they haven't developed things like artillery or, uh, you know, small, small arms or things like that. So yeah. that that brings up a, an interesting uh, an interesting possibility for the future of. The, the great war the great battle um i think i'll explain that really quickly they might get into it in future episodes but i'll just tell you right now um there is a a sect called the illuminators guild they are the people who make all of the fireworks and they are a very insular guild you it's it's you're either in the guild or you're not and if you're not you don't know anything and if you are you don't associate with people who aren't so okay the knowledge of fireworks is only in this guild and they do not let anyone outside the guild have it okay that explains that they're, they're pretty much like their own separate society 
entirely. They 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 don't even live within the city walls. I was almost a little disappointed because I thought she was uh, using so fireworks as yeah, a yeah, more uh, analogy for the political panderings going on in that room. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some shit's about to go down. This will be fun. Yeah. So uh, Rand goes straight to visit Loghain, and he gives him the wine. And Loghain is very great, grateful and... and it proceeds to waste half of it to make a point. Oh, that bothered me. <laughs> it's like you got champagne from Champagne, and you just pour it out. Ah. Rand asks, okay, so how do you stop this longing for the power? How do I, how do I avoid it? How do I just forget that it's there and Loghain says that's the secret you you can't you're, you're you're stuck buddy this is your life and then goes a bit over the cuckoo's nest source keeps coming and it won't stop coming no 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 smash mouth fuck you especially in this episode you're gonna quote smash mouth in this episode really <laughs> after what happened to uno yeah no ooh <laughs> oh damn it ouch so so rand tells Logain, look you know you're not the dragon right and Logain says no i am i have the blood of loose theron in my veins i hear him talking to me in my head i i i, I have spoken to all of the previous dragons i i am the dragon and uh rand just leaves and Logain predicts that he's gonna break him out so are we back to Voltron theory? Like, <laughs> I never left it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just same here. The theory is my house, and I live here. <laughs> it is possible that he's the blood descendant of Luz Theron, without necessarily being the dragon, isn't it? There are no, there are no direct blood descendants of Luz Theron. That's where he got the name Kinslayer. Oh. Okay. Like a 12th cousin, 17 times removed kind of thing. Yeah, something like that, maybe. Well, we've all speculated that the taint is is talking to him as if it was the the dragon's voice. Yeah, it, it, is he really talking to all the previous dragons, or is that just the way the madness is, is forming in his mind? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going with the madness theory that He's hearing voices, and they're they're telling him that they're previous dragons. Next scene, we're back in the White Tower, and we see Matt going through the tower, and he finds Egwene sobbing in a courtyard, and he almost goes to her and then doesn't. He's doing what he does best. I found this, yeah, I've, I found this really uncharacteristic for Matt, because all through season one, you see him comforting his friends, like that's what he does. And then in this scene, she's in tears and he doesn't go to her. And that is so out of character. And I don't know if it's because of Leandrin's little speech or the fact that he's been, you know, getting manipulated by her for the last five months, or if it's a residual effect of the dagger or what. But that's that's a big change for him not to yeah. go to somebody he cares about and try and help them. And then he goes back to the to the prison cell and tells Min he doesn't know where to go. Like, in what universe does not does Matt not want to go home to his sisters? Well, yeah, Willow in chat just brought up the letter. Maybe that's why Matt didn't go to her because of Leandrin omitting him from all of the letters and making 
him think that his friends have moved on and abandoned him. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Matt's in his right mind. And I mean that a bit literally, like he's been sitting in isolation for months with only Leandrin. Leandrin's been manipulating him. He doesn't quite know what's real or not Mm -hmm. real. And I don't mean that in like a psychotic way. I mean that like, he just does not have the facts. And so he's working from corrupted information. He's working from a very emotionally compromised state. So you're saying that walking around for like six months with some kind of weird heroin demon inside of you and then getting thrown in the basement of a tower and having to only talk to Leandrin for six more months is going to drive you a little crazy? Yeah, it's not optimal conditions. And we know what sensory deprivation does to people if they're put in solitary confinement. Yeah. So that's that's completely legitimate. Yeah. I was honestly so surprised to see him in such a chipper mood in in episode two and then in three subsequently it's like you look terrible in the first episode he fronts well that's kind of matt's thing yeah he fronts well he always wants to to put on a good face he did have company suddenly but you can kind of see in the little game he played with leander and leaving that he's he has gone a little bit insane like and he latched onto men like a baby duck like <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, Matt goes back and and gets Min and and they break out together and they vamoose. Uh, we go back to Toman Head and Perrin wakes up in the back of a wagon with Ishamael. They're on the way to Falm as guests of High Lady Sura. Yeah, that doesn't sound like it's going to end well. <laughs> no, I, you know, being a guest, being that close to her, seems like a curse more than anything. Like. Half an hour ago, I was thinking, I was like, I think I'd just rather be a peasant in that society. Like, I don't, I don't want to be powerful or important or have good ideas ever. No. Ishamiel talks about Perrin's rage for a bit, says he wants to see the monster. The more wolf you get, the closer I am to having you. I think he's straight up lying. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, this thing about the more wolf you are, the more you belong to me. That's bullshit (laughs) right so what would his game be there do you think it's a form of seduction almost you know like this is a part of Perrin that he can't necessarily divorce himself from and by making Perrin more afraid and conflicted his chance of influencing him is much better Mm -hmm. it's a mind game i i found him straight up to be palpatine in this scene like it was almost a one for one for me of palpatine talking to um anakin early on even mm-hmm. same same line of we will be watching you yeah. with great interest. Well, he even looked like Palpatine there for a minute when when Perrin realized it was Flameface. Yeah, but Palpatine didn't have a just a, the the shirt that Shamael is wearing is just such a great design. It's like man, I want that. <laughs> how do you put the, how do you put that thing on? It doesn't even have buttons. I guess it's like a tunic with a you know a larger head thing that comes together with the little clip but i'm like that is boss yeah and and you notice he doesn't dress like anybody else i no. think he's he's wearing he's wearing his clothes from the age of legends he's like no nah, right this modern stuff doesn't doesn't hang right it doesn't doesn't form right <laughs> robes nah the the draping isn't correct yeah he made sure his tailor got cast out with him <laughs> <laughs> The Forsaken Taylor. Which Forsaken is the Taylor? 
I don't like these modern day fabrics and weaves. I need need to kick it old school. I'll pay extra. So we hear the good boy squad show up outside. So there are howls in the distance. And uh, channelers start attacking the wolves and Ishmael leaves. And that's when Elias comes clomping over the, the roof of the, the wagon that Perrin is in comes swinging through the door and obviously he got interrupted in the middle of eating a big plate of barbecue. Sure. He has barbecue yeah. sauce just dripping down his face. Yeah. Sauce. Yeah. Barbecue sauce. That's what that was. Barbecue sauce. So sleeping into the stars worked out well for him. Yeah. <laughs> he made some friends. Yeah. Yeah. He, he tells Perrin, go, go with him. He'll take you to safety. And, and him is a wolf. I got the sense of Shamael let them leave without, Oh yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Because I highly doubt, <laughs> I highly doubt Shamael and and the and the imperialist crew like do not have plans for this. So I don't I don't think they let people escape unless it's on purpose, or they don't care. One of the two. My impression of this is that. Is it the Sean Chen wouldn't necessarily let Perrin escape, but Ishamael doesn't care. Like, if Perrin goes off and does his own thing, he's not going to lose track of him. He's going to keep an eye on him. But his motives aren't necessarily the same as the Sean Chen's. The Sean Chen are convenient for him right now, but he's he's not pushing them necessarily to want to win the fight. He just wants to make sure everybody's fighting. Yeah. yeah. They don't have the same end goal. Sowing yeah. chaos. Yes. Jay in chat just said Ishamael and the Imperialist crew sounds like a band name. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds, to me, sounds to me like like an, an early New York hip hop group. Yeah. 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 Anytime anytime the the wolves show up, I just uh, you know, the good boy squad shows up, I just I Yeah. Yeah. So there's awesome. <laughs> we have a Dragon Boy suede track. You won't sass me like that when I can summon wolves. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so our next scene, we're at the White Tower. Matt and Min are stealing some horses and food, and uh, Min says, yeah, let me go back and grab one more thing, and that's when we find out Min is working with Leandrin. I should not have been surprised by that. <laughs> I was so disappointed. Like, wow, I can't believe this. I mean, I can, but come on, guys. <laughs> that wasn't cool. Is your freedom really worth that? Come on. Well, to be fair, she doesn't know this guy from Adam. So, and, yeah. She's not a bad person, but also she's got this thing that everybody holds over her. So, My, I don't think she'll hurt Matt because of like any sense or like inclination toward disliking him. But it's like, like I'm, I'm always rooting for men. Like, you do what you got to do to survive. And, it is what it is in this world, especially for her. But it's like, oh, man, I hate that you like you're still caught up and beholden to Leandrin like this. Yeah. No one deserves in that. In her defense, she doesn't she doesn't look happy about it. I want to think for a minute about what Min saw with Matt. Mm. Mm. She know she knows who Rand is and mm -hmm. she knows that Rand is is the dragon. And she just saw a vision of Matt killing the dragon so as far as she's concerned matt's a bad guy because she just saw him murder somebody 
Or at the, somebody important. At best, yeah. she does not know where he's coming from with his priorities. She doesn't know him. You know, like it's it's like when you maybe this is this is a not a universal experience. It's when you go to a frat house and the guy who invited you is a good guy, but you're in a frat house. <laughs> like, uh, like oh, what are you really capable of and that question mark yeah, yeah. little sus yeah leandrin is showing that you know she could be a blue with all of the all of the intrigue that she's fostering and the long cons and she you know. does foster the intrigue and the long cons but she does it very clunky. She's so clumsy and loud. Oh yeah. Well yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it never seems to end well for her either. I think she wants to be a blue. Yeah. That's why she's so you know, she's got this real envy with Moraine and the other blues. Yeah. That comes out she as could, sort she of contempt. Pass the FBI placement in Sam, so she just became <sighs> a local beat cop instead. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. So our next scene, we are in Kyrian back in the foregate, and Celine finds Rand in his apartment after leaving the, the party, says if he ever leaves her like that again, she'll kill him. And I, I think we're seeing the Celine that, that was hurt right there. Mm -hmm. um, they establish a safe word and start with business time. <laughs> I don't know, man. She's way too up in his business. I would move if I were Rand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, for somebody who doesn't want attachments, Celine's getting pretty close. Yeah. Uh, so she tells him to, no, no, wear the jacket, my lord. <laughs> he starts losing control and, and starts channeling while they're in the middle of business time. And she says, I'm not afraid. And then things start getting really weird. I was like, um, listen. It's all fun and games until <laughs> until, until somebody it's not. sets your house on fire. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then we see Rand waking up in the bed, and Celine comes rushing in. So, do we think that last scene actually happened, or was that all a dream? I got the sense it was a dream. And and Rand wakes up still with the the channeling happening. And and that's how the house gets set on fire. But do we think that the stuff that happened before really happened? Maybe there's just a time slip. Like he can't remember once he starts channeling, he can't remember what he's done. And there's a hard cut in there too, somewhere between when they go to the bed and when they're when he starts channeling in bed. And I think that him being with Celine, where she says, "I'm going to kill you if you leave me," that I think that was real. But then I think all of the the channeling um, in bed was not. I think that was a dream. I'm going to second that. Like, I'm sitting here thinking of it. I think David's right on this one. My thought is is he had the, the channeler equivalent of a wet dream. He channeled That's in his sleep. Exactly what I got as well. Oops. He's, he's going to have to sneak the, the covers into the washing machine before mom wakes up. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a little hard to do that when <laughs> the result is you set the house on fire. <laughs> and that's when, when Rand realizes he, he really is a danger. It's a very wooden town. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, if he's a danger to himself and only himself, he's like, yeah, whatever. But, like, he just made several people homeless. It 
like it's extremely flammable town like there are kids here these are people who cannot afford to lose anything and the fact that he was channeling and she said i'm not afraid that's kind of what would make me think it might be a dream because that sounds like you know he he He's afraid that everybody's going to be afraid of him because of what he can do. So somebody saying, I'm not afraid, sounds like a dream, right? That's what he wanted to hear. Or she could be a dark friend doing the same kind of thing that Ishamael was doing to Perrin. Sort of show me your power uh, to see what, what we can use. She shouldn't be able to see his power, though. Even if she herself can channel, she can't see male channel, male power, right? Based on when Moraine and Alana were um, controlling Loghain, Moraine said something about how we cannot see what he's doing, but it's still an enormous amount of work to control him. Mm -hmm. There was actually a dialogue about how she, she, you know, I I know I can't see men's weaves, but like, this feels like a lot's going on. Well, I mean, there's a lot we don't know about the dark friends and what they what they're capable of. Maybe they can change their appearance so that they look like women when they're not. Ooh, I love a shapeshifter. So we end up back in the White Tower, and we've got Egwene and Elaine. Um, Egwene is attempting to power on the Turangrial, and Elaine is like, look, this has been tried hundreds of times over the last 3,000 years, and it's never worked. If they're gone, they're gone. Egwene says, do something helpful instead of telling me what not to do. Elaine's saying she would get blankets and they would, she would wait the night out with her is the first useful thing she's offered. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like she's still like, give her all the points for trying, but like she finally got there, but it's like, finally she actually offers something that's emotionally supportive. She's still figuring out how to be a best friend. But like, I'm also surprised that's not like standard protocol because like, I know like, Oh, nobody's ever come back, but how do you know? How do you know? You guys like standing vigil for 24 hours would not kill you guys. Next, we go inside the arch. We're back with Nynaeve, and we see Perrin chasing Nynaeve's child, Elnor, around, clearly named after Nynaeve's mother. It's the biggest smile I've ever seen on Perrin's face. He looks so happy. <laughs> and and Matt rides up looking just completely silly in some kind of weird mishmash of clothing. Nynaeve's, like, fantasy world is adorable. Right. And their friends are happy and uh it's all she wants out of life. What struck me about this is we are seeing Matt and Perrin through Nynaeve's eyes. They never act like adults in this scene. True. They are always playing with her kid. That's ah. true. She is a little older than them and she had some power over them and she still sees them as children that she needs to care for. Mm, nice. We find Lan inside making honey cakes. Lan with his hair down. I laughed at this. And, uh, I'm sorry. Like <laughs> 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 the hair, the outfit, the the house husband baking pastries. Uh, I, was, I was like, oh, yeah. this is great. I I this is a common fantasy of many like a boss bitch I know, and so. 
Like to have a, a sexy house husband uh-huh. who's doing the dishes. <laughs> Traded in his sword for uh, kitchen knives. Yeah. <laughs> we find out that Egwene sent a letter. She says that she and the rest of the Greens are going north to face down some Trollocs in Saldea. That seems a little close to the two rivers. Saldea is more or less directly north of the two rivers, but it is north through some very rugged country. Mm-hmm. And, and quite a ways north. Um, Lan asks her if she regret, regrets leaving the tower, and at that moment, some Trollocs show up. Uh, it's, it's a repeat of winter night, it feels like. Nynaeve goes to fight, uh, puts her daughter in the basement, much like she was left in the basement when she was a child, and uh, goes outside and sees Lan, Matt, and Perrin all die to Trolloc swords. And that's when Nynaeve loses her shit, and touches the source in a place where she's just straight up plumb not supposed to be able to touch the source. Took me like an hour after I watched this the first time to realize that. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, and, and her touching the source seems to have revealed the arch. So she, she grabs Elnor and runs through the arch. And when she gets back into the room, Elnor is not there. And her heart breaks. <laughs> yes. Like, she lived a whole life. That was her daughter. Yeah. Like, I've... Like, her future, her fear of the future being basically a mirror of what she went through in the past. Like, it's very common. But I... I it's just... It, it hit me really hard. Like, that, like for Nynaeve, there seems to be, like, no escape from this. Like, no deviation yeah. in the script. There's, it's always the same, like, following her through it's her life. It's almost like things keep happening cyclically, like in a big flat circle yeah. or something. Time is a flat circle. I, I think part of what I got out of this is was kind of like, she has all this guilt about people she left behind. And her being in the tower when she's abandoned the people in Two Rivers... But now she has a future where she leaves the tower and she still can't help people. Like, her decision, the decision to leave the tower in order to go back to not desert people means that she's no longer in the position to help the people that she was afraid of deserting. Like, you're yeah. between a rock and a hard place. Like, you yeah. really, it does leave you free to make the choice based on what you want and not what you think will best serve other people. So I guess the, the part of this that I hadn't really twigged in is you were saying that her use of the power is what brought the exit back. And I was kind of trying to figure out why she got two, where everybody else only got gets one. And I wondered if like the first, because the first exit was so subdued and quiet that maybe the archer said, oh, you know what, she's not done yet. I think the first one wasn't real. I think that was actually part of the whole experience where, like, part of her fear in, like, in (laughs) this ghost of Christmas uh, future is what will I choose ultimately? I think that's part of it. And so that's why she was able to, like, be like, oh, this is a dream. I'm ignoring it because, like, there's a part of her that would. 
And so like the fear, the fear had to marinate a bit. Like the storyline wasn't done yet. So I think this, I think the second one is the real one. And it, and indeed is only the one, but we had to get to but that. The point. Aes Sedai sure seemed to think that the first one was real because they wrote her off after it went away. Time, time flows differently in this space, obviously, because she's experienced the whole lifetime in this arch. And I think that the arches would have stayed lit up if that were the case. Um, if it was a part of the dream. And there was a big difference when the second archway showed up. She did that big explosion of power. And then the arch was there glowing brilliantly, not just glowing faintly like it had shown up before. And not just the arch, but like area around the arch also. Mm -hmm which we did not see lit up before. Her level of channeling is just something that they've never seen inside the arches before. So they've never, they don't have an experience of someone being able to overcome that block that's in there and being able to open the door from the inside. It's just a different thing than what the current Aes Sedai have understand about the arches. That's a valid point. If everything they know about Tarangriol is from experimenting, they haven't had somebody at her power level, doing those experiments up until now. Yeah. And they said it's before the breaking, which means that maybe once upon a time you did have access to the source, like the, your everyday eye said I, but now, you know, post-breaking, that's not the case. Who knows what those Tarangri all were originally intended for as well? Who knows? Who knows if they're even using them correctly? Do you know? I don't. Okay. Our our knowledge of of items left over from the Age of Legends is is pretty much nothing. Okay. Um, anybody else have any more thoughts before we go out? I feel like this season is not as cohesive as the first one, and I understand that that's because everybody is scattered and they have their own storyline that they're following. But it just feels like the energy is like a little bit more all over the place. That's not necessarily criticism. I'm still waiting to see how things play out. And it's just kind of like my overall impression so far of season two is that it does kind of feel like we're everywhere. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, season one was more just coherent, singular storyline. And, and now we're definitely seeing multiple storylines rear their heads. And, and I hate to say it, but in Robert Jordan's books, storylines rear their heads like hydras. If, if, if you kill one storyline, two more pop up in its place. So I mean, you have you have six main characters, seven counting Bella, and uh, you know it uh, when they're all in the same place. It's easier to follow, but you want to keep track of everybody. You want to tell everybody's stories when they're separate, and that's going to happen. So I wanted to bring up uh, um, the thing that we didn't want to talk about earlier, which is Uno's death. Not happy. <laughs> New. It was very surprising because in all of our conversation before, you made it seem like he's a long-lived character in the book. Going to so be around for a while. It, yeah, it seemed like that was a little quick. Yeah, and, and I will be straight up. I, I'll be straight up. In the books, he does survive much, much longer than this. So you also screamed. <laughs> oh, I yeah, I am very. I I still don't know how to feel about this because Uno is is one of those everyman characters that I've spoken of before that I just really love. He's just 
some schlub trying to do his thing and gets caught up in all of this, you know? And yeah, I, I thought about it for a while and I realized there's 2000 some odd named characters in the books. There are over 200 of them get point of view chapters. There are so many just side characters and in, incidental characters and things that people just latch onto and love and they keep showing up because of once you get caught up in the pattern you get caught in the pattern and and keep showing up and in order to actually get through a good number of those they're going to have to give all of those characters much smaller roles mm -hmm. and i i get that now the, they they just showed us look if you want this character later on we've got to move on from uno now still and mad yeah <laughs> yes. it, it, but it, it it feels like the the gloves are off now we we now know that that nobody's safe so we're in we're in game of thrones level territory now yeah yeah we've had our sean bean moment and with that i think we can call this one an episode greg do you want to take us out Yes, indeed. We need to thank Michael and Jen at the Watch Party Secret Island headquarters who are responsible for all of this. Thank, thank you, Michael and Jen. Michael and Jen. Yeah, they are the home of our sister podcast, A Watch Party of Ice and Fire, Watch Party Lord of the Rings, and Watch Party Gaming. Please rate, review us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it really helps us get the get the show, the show out to more people helps to grow our little community here speaking of our community you can communicate with us via email at watchparty at gmail.com we are on the socials at watchparty and we've got a discord server which you can reach through our show notes so now it is time for our final question and that final question coming to us from Jay in the chat if another character in the show, character of your choice, went through the arches, what would they see? I think if Matt went through the arches right now, he would get pretty much what he thinks he's already living through, where none of his friends are talking to him, and he's basically abandoned his sisters. That's my answer, Siobhan. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. I think we all had that. I think we all had that. <laughs> so, so Matt would just walk through the arch, and everything would just be the same. It'd yeah, be like I, I well. would. I would see him in uh, sort of the past as a child. Uh, you know, having to grow up and being, you know, being the uh, the adult around the house. So he would see what made him become the caretaker become the uh the protector of his sisters well it's my turn with the brain cell right now uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i uh i have matt going through the arch of christmas present and his sisters are gone from the two rivers like he returns to the two rivers like okay gotta take care of them this is my life now Kind of sucks for us, but at least it's what I know. And his sisters are just gone. Like, they've been sent away or they've left. And he's like, yo, what's up? And he's like, they just decided that the best thing for them was to not be here anymore. And then, poof, doesn't have a clue because nobody else has a clue. Mm. I, I think that would terrify him. Yeah. It would terrify me. Oh, yeah. 
I think Loyal gets forced to uh, attend a white cloak book burning. Oh! oh. <laughs> Damn! All right. Wow. <laughs> Why are you going to do that to poor Loyal? Oh, man. It wasn't me, it was the arches. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, in, in, in honor of Uno, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream cone? Oh. I am uh. mad about <laughs> losing Uno. <laughs> Damn. Sorry, that was uh that that was kind of rude. <laughs> Very rude. How, how you, you guys... dare they? <laughs>